just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Clary. Clary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Clary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, they've got saxophones, trumpets, drums, they've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20 watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under 80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's one of our reading episodes. 
and we have a variety of people reading various ghost stories from various writers, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, and Charlotte Gilman, to name a few. So most of these episodes are roughly about half an hour or more, and there's going to be two episodes per story, and... Yeah, that's what we've got going on. Some spooky stories for you to listen to with some cool, snary drums going on in the background. And, yeah, not a whole bunch of noise to interrupt what's going on. So I hope you enjoy it. Some spooky stories. And if you are lucky enough, at the very beginning of October, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, and there is also going to be a second H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival that's going to be less in person and more of a streaming thing. Check us out on there. Dave's got some stuff going on on that. I'm going to have some stuff going on on that. And also, I'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Taza Chocolate, Stone Ground Chocolate. And you know what? This is super minimally processed. If you're like me and you have a bunch of food allergies, you can't do dairy, they have dairy-free chocolates. They, they, they use dairy alternatives, uh, minimally processed, of course, organic. I love them. You love them. Toss of chocolates. They, they come in those discs that you can break up and put into hot beverages and stir up. Ooh, I love it so much. Anyway, Oz. So why not? I don't know, sit down with a nice warm beverage. We've got the tea that you can get. We've got the coffee you can get. I don't know, maybe microwave some psychedelic water, baby. Ghostly horror stories. Nukurukubi by Lefkadio Hearn. Nearly 500 years ago, there was a samurai named Isoga Hedazaimon Taketsura in the service of the Lord Kikuji of Kyushu. This Isogai had inherited from many warlike ancestors a natural aptitude for military exercises and extraordinary strength. While yet a boy, he had surpassed his teachers in the art of swordsmanship, in archery, and in the use of the spear, and had displayed all the capacities of a daring and skillful soldier. Afterwards, in the time of the Eikyo War, footnote, the period of Eikyo lasted from 1429 to 1441. He so distinguished himself that high honours were bestowed upon him. But when the house of Kikuji came to ruin, Isogai found himself without a master. He might then easily have obtained service under another daimyo, but as he had never sought distinction from his own sake alone, and as his heart remained true to his former lord, he preferred to give up the world. So he cut off his hair and became a travelling priest, taking the Buddhist name of Kwaidyo. But always under the koromo, footnote, the upper robe of the Buddhist priest is thus called, of the priest, Kwaidyo kept warm within him the heart of the samurai. As in other years he had laughed at peril, so now also he scorned danger, and in all weathers and all seasons he journeyed to preach the good lore in places where no other priest would have dared to go. For that age was an age of violence and disorder, and upon the highways there was no security for the solitary traveller, even if he happened to be a priest. In the course of his first long journey, Kwaryo had occasion to visit the province of Kai, footnote, present-day Yamanashi Prefecture. One evening, as he was travelling through the mountains of that province, darkness overcame him in a very lonesome district, leagues away from any village. So he resigned himself to pass the night under the stars, and having found a suitable grassy spot by the roadside, he lay down there and prepared to sleep. 
He had always welcomed discomfort, and even a bare rock was for him a good bed, when nothing better could be found, and the root of a pine tree an excellent pillow. His body was iron, and he never troubled himself about dews or rain or frost or snow. Scarcely had he lain down when a man came along the road, carrying an axe and a great bundle of chopped wood. This woodcutter halted on seeing Quido lying down, and, after a moment of silent observation, said to him in a tone of great surprise, "'What kind of a man can you be, good sir, that you dare to lie down alone in such a place as this? There are haunters about here, many of them. Are you not afraid of hairy things?' "'My friend,' cheerfully answered Quido, "'I am only a wandering priest.' A cloud-and-water guest, as folks call it, Unsi no Ryokaku, footnote, a term for itinerant priests. And I am not in the least afraid of hairy things, if you mean goblin foxes or goblin badgers or any creatures of that kind. As for lonesome places, I like them. They are suitable for meditation. I am accustomed to sleeping in the open air, and I have learned never to be anxious about my life. You must be indeed a brave man, sir priest the peasant responded, to lie down here. This place has a bad name, a very bad name, but, as the proverb has it, kunshi ayoki ni chikayorazu, translation, the superior man does not needlessly expose himself to peril, and I must assure you, sir, that it is very dangerous to sleep here. Therefore, although my house is only a wretched thatched heart, let me beg of you to come home with me at once." In the way of food, I have nothing to offer you, but there's a roof at least, and you can sleep under it without risk. He spoke earnestly, and Quido, liking the kindly tone of the man, accepted this modest offer. The woodcutter guided him along a narrow path, leading up from the main road through mountain forest. It was a rough and dangerous path, sometimes skirting precipices, sometimes offering nothing but a network of slippery roots for the foot to rest upon, sometimes winding over all between masses of jagged rock. But at last, Quido found himself upon a cleared space at the top of a hill, with a full moon shining overhead, and he saw before him a small thatched cottage, cheerfully lighted from within. The woodcutter led him to a shed at the back of the house, where the water had been conducted through bamboo pipes from some neighbouring stream, and the two men washed their feet. Beyond the shed was a vegetable garden and a grove of cedars and bamboos, and beyond the trees appeared the glimmer of a cascade, pouring from some loftier height and swaying in the moonshine like a long white robe. As Quido entered the cottage with his guide, he perceived four persons men and women warming their hands at a little fire kindled in the row. Footnote, a sort of little fireplace contrived in the floor of a room is thus described. The row is usually a square shallow cavity lined with metal and half filled with ashes in which charcoal is lighted of the principal apartment. They bowed low to the priest and greeted him in the most respectful manner. Quite a wonder that persons so poor and dwelling in such a solitude should be aware of the polite forms of greeting. These are good people, he thought to himself, and they must have been taught by someone well acquainted with the rules of propriety. Then turning to his host, the Aruji, or housemaster, as the others called him, Quido said, from the kindness of your speech and from the very polite welcome given me by your household, I imagine that you have not always been a woodcutter. Perhaps you formerly belonged to one of the upper classes. Smiling, the woodcutter answered, 
Sir, you are not mistaken. Though now living as you find me, I was once a person of some distinction. My story is the story of a ruined life, ruined by my own fault. I used to be in the service of a daimyo, and my rank in that service was not inconsiderable. But I loved women and wine too well, and under the influence of passion, I acted wickedly. My selfishness brought about the ruin of our house and caused the death of many persons. Retribution followed me, and I long remained a fugitive in the land. Now I often pray that I may be able to make some atonement for the evil which I did, and to re-establish the ancestral home. But I fear that I shall never find any way of so doing. Nevertheless, I try to overcome the karma of my errors by sincere repentance, and by helping as far as I can those who are unfortunate. Quidio was pleased by this announcement of good resolve, and he said to the Arugi, My friend, I have had occasion to observe that man, prone to folly in their youth, may in after years become very earnest in right living. In the Holy Sutras it is written that those strongest in wrongdoing can become, by power of good resolve, the strongest in right doing. I do not doubt that you have a good heart, and I hope that better fortune will come to you. Tonight I shall recite the sutras for your sake, and pray that you may obtain the force to overcome the karma of any past errors. With these assurances, Quido bade the Arugi good night, and his host showed him to a very small side room where a bed had been made ready. Then all went to sleep except the priest, who began to read the sutras by the light of a paper lantern. Until a late hour he continued to read and pray. Then he opened a little window in his little sleeping room to take a last look at the landscape before lying down. The night was beautiful, there was no cloud in the sky, there was no wind, and the strong moonlight threw down sharp black shadows of foliage and glittered on the dews of the garden. Shrillings of crickets and bell insects, footnote, direct translation of Suzumushi, a kind of cricket with a distinctive chirp like a tiny bell, whence the name made a musical tumult, and the sound of the neighbouring cascade deepened with the night. Quidio felt thirsty as he listened to the noise of the water, and, remembering the bamboo aqueduct at the rear of the house, he thought that he could go there and get a drink without disturbing the sleeping household. Very gently, he pushed apart the sliding screens that separated his room from the main apartment, and he saw, by the light of the lantern, five recumbent bodies, without heads, for one instant he stood bewildered, imagining a crime, but in another moment he perceived that there was no blood and that the headless necks did not look as if they had been cut. Then he thought to himself, either this is an illusion made by goblins, or I have been lured into the dwelling of Arukurukubi. Footnote, now Arukurukubi is ordinarily conceived as a goblin whose neck stretches out to great lengths, but which nevertheless always remains attached to its body. In the book Soshinki, footnote, a Chinese collection of stories on the supernatural, it is written that if one find the body of Orokurokubi without its head and remove the body to another place, the head will never be able to join itself again to the neck. And the book further says that when the head comes back and find that its body has been moved, it will strike itself upon the floor three times, bounding like a ball, and will pant as in great fear, and presently die. Now, if these be Rokurokubi, they mean me no good, so I shall be justified in following the instructions of the book. He seized the body of the Aruji by the feet, pulled it to the window, and pushed it out. 
Then he went to the back door, which he found barred, and he surmised that the heads had made their exit through the smoke hole in the roof, which had been left open. Gently unbarring the door, he made his way to the garden and proceeded with all possible caution to the grove behind it. He heard voices talking in the grove, and he went in the direction of the voices, stealing from shadow to shadow until he reached the good hiding place. Then, from behind the trunk, he caught sight of the heads, all five of them, flitting about and chatting as they flitted. They were eating worms and insects which they found on the ground or among the trees. Presently, the head of the Arugi stopped eating and said, Ah, that travelling priest who came tonight, how fat all his body is! When we shall have eaten him, our bellies will be well filled. I was foolish to talk to him as I did. It only set him to reciting the sutras on behalf of my soul. To go near him while he is reciting would be difficult, and we cannot touch him so long as he is praying. But as it is now nearly morning, perhaps he has gone to sleep. Some one of you go to the house and see what the fellow is doing. Another head, the head of a young woman, immediately rose up and flitted to the house, lightly as a bat. After a few minutes it came back and cried out huskily, in a tone of great alarm, That travelling priest is not in the house. He's gone. But that is not the worst of the matter. He has taken the body of our Aruji, and I do not know where he has put it. At this announcement, the head of the Aruji distinctly visible in the moonlight, assumed a frightful aspect. Its eyes opened monstrously, its hair stood up bristling, and its teeth gnashed. Then a cry burst from its lips, and, weeping tears of rage, it exclaimed, Since my body has been moved, to rejoin it is not possible. Then I must die, and all through the work of that priest. Before I die, I will get at that priest. I will tear him. I will devour him. And there he is, behind that tree, hiding behind that tree. See him, the fat coward. In the same moment, the head of the Aruji, followed by the other four heads, sprang at Quaidio. But the strong priest had already armed himself by plucking up a young tree. And with that tree, he struck the heads as they came, knocking them from him with tremendous blows. Four of them fled away. But the head of the Aruji, though battered again and again, desperately continued to bound at the priest, and at last caught him by the left sleeve of his robe. Quaidio, however, as quickly gripped the head by its topknot, and repeatedly struck it. It did not release its hold, but it uttered a long moan, and thereafter ceased to struggle. It was dead, but its teeth still held the sleeve, and for all his great strength, Quaidio could not force open the jaws. With the head still hanging to his sleeve, he went back to the house, and there caught sight of the other four Okurokubi squatting together, with their bruised and bleeding heads reunited to their bodies. But when they perceived him at the back door, all screamed, The priest! The priest! and fled through the other doorway, out into the woods. Eastward, the sky was brightening, day was about to dawn, and Quido knew that the power of the goblins was limited to the hours of darkness. He looked at the head clinging to his sleeve, its face all fouled with blood and foam and clay, and he laughed aloud as he thought to himself, What a miyage! Footnote, a present made to friends or to the household on returning from a journey is thus called. Ordinarily, of course, the miyage consists of something produced in the locality to which the journey has been made. This is the point of Quirio's jest.
the head of a goblin, after which he gathered together his few belongings and leisurely descended the mountain to continue his journey. Right on he journeyed until he came to Suwa in Shinano, footnote, present-day Nagano Prefecture, and into the main street of Suwa he solemnly strode with the head dangling at his elbow. Then women fainted and children screamed and ran away, and there was a great crowding and clamouring until the Torite, footnote, as the police in those days were called, seized the priest and took him to jail. For they supposed the head to be the head of a murdered man who, in the moment of being killed, had caught the murderer's sleeve in his teeth. As the Kwaidyo, he only smiled and said nothing when they questioned him. So, after having passed a night in prison, he was brought before the magistrates of the district. Then he was ordered to explain how he, a priest, had been found with the head of a man fastened to his sleeve, and why he had dared thus shamelessly to parade his crime in the sight of people. Kaido laughed long and loudly at these questions, and then he said, Sirs, I did not fasten the head to my sleeve. It fastened itself there, much against my will. And I have not committed any crime, for this is not the head of a man. It is the head of a goblin. And if I caused the death of the goblin, I did not do so by any shedding of blood, but simply by taking the precautions necessary to assure my own safety. And he proceeded to relate the whole of the adventure, bursting into another hearty laugh as he told of his encounter with the five hands. But the magistrates did not laugh. They judged him to be a hardened criminal and his story an insult to their intelligence. Therefore, without further questioning, they decided to order his immediate execution. All of them, except one, a very old man. This aged officer had made no remark during the trial, but after having heard the opinion of his colleagues, he rose up and said, let us first examine the head carefully, for this, I think, has not yet been done. If the priest has spoken truth, the head itself should bear witness for him. Bring the head here. So the head, still holding in its teeth the koromo that had been stripped from Kwaido's shoulders, was put before the judges. The old man turned it round and round, carefully examined it, and discovered, on the nape of its neck, several strange red characters. He called the attention of his colleagues to these, and also bade them observe that the edges of the neck nowhere presented the appearance of having been cut by any weapon. On the contrary, the line of leverance was smooth as the line at which a falling leaf detaches itself from the stem. Then said the elder, I am quite sure that the priest told us nothing but the truth. This is the head of Orokurokubi. In the book Nanhoi Pushi, it is written that certain red characters can always be found upon the nape of the neck of a real Rokurokubi. There are other characters. You can see for yourselves that they have not been painted. Moreover, it is well known that such goblins have been dwelling in the mountains of the province of Kai from very ancient time. But you, sir, he exclaimed, turning to Kwaido, what sort of sturdy priest may you be? Certainly, you have given proof of a courage that few priests possess, and you have the air of a soldier rather than a priest. Perhaps you once belonged to the samurai class. You have guessed rightly, sir, Kwaino responded. Before becoming a priest, I long followed the profession of arms, and in those days I never feared man or devil. My name then was Isogai Hedazaimon Taketsura of Kyushu. There may be some among you who remember it. At the mention of that name, a murmur of admiration filled the courtroom, for there were many present who remembered it. 
and Quirio immediately found himself among friends instead of judges, friends anxious to prove their admiration by fraternal kindness. With honour they escorted him to the residence of the daimyo, who welcomed him, and feasted him, and made him a handsome present before allowing him to depart. When Quirio left Sua, he was as happy as any priest is permitted to be in this transitory world. As for the head, he took it with him, jocosely insisting that he intended it for a miyage. And now it only remains to tell what became of the head. A day or two after leaving Sua, Quirio met with a robber, who stopped him in a lonesome place, and bade him strip. Quirio at once removed his koromo, and offered it to the robber, who then first perceived what was hanging to the sleeve. Though brave, the highwayman was startled. He dropped the garment and sprang back. Then he cried out, You? What kind of a priest are you? Why, you are a worse man than I am. It is true that I have killed people, but I never walked about with anybody's head fastened to my sleeve. Well, sir priest, I suppose we are of the same calling, and I must say that I admire you. Now that head would be of use to me. I could frighten people with it. Will you sell it? You can have my robe in exchange for your koromo, and I will give you five ryo for the head. Quario answered, I shall let you have the head and the robe if you insist. But I must tell you that this is not the head of a man. It is a goblin's head. So if you buy it and have any trouble in consequence, please to remember that you were not deceived by me. What a nice priest you are, exclaimed the robber. You kill men and jest about it. But I am really in earnest. Here is my robe and here is the money and let me have the head. What is the use of joking? Take the thing, said Quirio. I was not joking. The only joke, if there be any joke at all, is that you are fool enough to pay good money for a goblin's head. And Quirio, loudly laughing, went upon his way. Thus the robber got the head and the koromo, and for some time he played goblin priest upon the highways. But, reaching the neighbourhood of Sua, he there learned the true story of the head, and he then became afraid that the spirit of the Rokurukubi might give him trouble. So he made up his mind to take back the head to the place from which it had come, and to bury it with its body. He found his way to the lonely cottage in the mountains of Kai, but nobody was there, and he could not discover the body. Therefore he buried the head by itself in the grove behind the cottage, and he had a tombstone set up over the grave, and he caused the Segaki service to be performed on behalf of the spirit of the Rokurokubi. And that tombstone, known as the Tombstone of the Rokurokubi, may be seen, at least so the Japanese storyteller declares, even unto this day. End of Rokurokubi Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. 
You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got psychedelic water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for curvy girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Oh, Larry. Fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave liked to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Thanks from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGPTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much. Did you know that there is a THC derivative that's legal called Delta 8? Not to be confused with the Delta variant, but Delta 8. Yeah. Uh, you can get it in chewable form, and it's sold at, uh, what, what, what's, what's Golden Goat CBD, one of our sponsors? Yeah, you can get some Delta 8, and you can also pick up some CBD chewables gummies. They've got smokables for the Delta 8, and they've got all kinds of stuff for CBD, and they can help you out. Uh, check the show notes, Golden Goat. And while you're in the show notes, hey, do you know about Donner? Donner has so many amazing musical instruments from all kinds, mandolins, banjos, they've got drums, they've got amplifiers, they've got guitars, they've got all kinds of stuff, and they ship worldwide. Check out Donner. I think you're going to like it, and I think Donner's going to have a good deal for you. So I, I love their electric guitars. A lot of the music that I perform for the show is either on one brand or it's on a Donner. So check out Donner and check out some savings. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to By Chad Sawyer.
silence, a fable. The mountain pinnacles slumber, valleys, crags, and caves are silent. Listen to me, said the demon as he placed his hand upon my head. The region of which I speak is a dreary region in Libya, by the borders of the river Zaire, and there is no quiet there, nor silence. The waters of the river have a saffron and sickly hue, and they flow not onwards to the sea, but palpitate forever and forever beneath the red eye of the sun, with a tumultuous and convulsive motion. For many miles on either side of the river's oozy bed is a pale desert of gigantic water lilies. They sigh one unto the other in that solitude and stretch toward the heaven their long and ghastly necks and nod to and fro their everlasting heads. And there is an indistinct murmur which cometh out from among them like the rushing of subterranean water. And they sigh one unto the other. But there is a boundary to their realm, the boundary of the dark, horrible, lofty forest. There, like the waves about the Hebrides, the low underwood is agitated continually. But there is no wind throughout the heaven, and the tall primeval trees rock eternally hither and thither with a crashing and mighty sound, and from their high summits one by one drop everlasting dews, and at the roots strange poisonous flowers lie writhing in perturbed slumber, and overhead, with a rustling and loud noise, the grey clouds rush westwardly forever, until they roll a cataract over the fiery wall of the horizon. There is no wind throughout the heaven, and by the shores of the river Zaire there is neither quiet nor silence. It was night, and the rain fell, and falling it was rain, but having fallen it was blood. And I stood in the morass among the tall, and the rain fell upon my head, and the lilies sighed one unto the other in the solemnity of their desolation. And all at once the moon arose through the thin, ghastly mist, and it was crimson in color, and mine eyes fell upon a huge gray rock which stood by the shore of the river, and was lighted by the light of the moon, and the rock was gray, and ghastly, and tall, and the rock was gray. Upon its front were characters engraven in the stone, and I walked through the morass of water lilies until I came close unto the shore that I might read the characters upon the stone, but I could not decipher them, and I was going back into the morass, when the moon shone with a fuller red, and I turned and looked again upon the rock, and upon the characters, and the characters were desolation. And I looked upwards, and there stood a man upon the summit of the rock, and I hid myself among the water lilies that I might discover the actions of the man. And the man was tall and stately in form, and was wrapped up from his shoulders to his feet in the toga of old Rome. And the outlines of his figure were indistinct, but his features were the features of a deity. 
for the mantle of the night, and of the mist, and of the moon, and of the dew, had left uncovered the features of his face, and his brow was lofty with thought, and his eye wild with care, and in the few furrows upon his cheek I read the fables of sorrow and weariness, and disgust with mankind, and a longing after solitude. And the man sat upon a rock, and leaned his head upon his hand, and looked out upon the desolation. He looked down into the low, unquiet shrubbery, and up into the tall, primeval trees, and up higher at the rustling heaven, and into the crimson moon. And I lay close within shelter of the lilies, and observed the actions of the man, and the man trembled in the solitude. But the night waned, and he sat upon a rock. And the man turned his attention from the heaven, and looked out upon the dreary river Zaire, and upon the yellow, ghastly waters, and upon the pale legions of the water lilies. And the man listened to the sighs of the water lilies, and to the murmur that came up from among them. And I lay close within my covert, and observed the actions of the man. And the man trembled in the solitude. But the night waned, and he sat upon the rock. Then I went down into the recesses of the morass, and waded afar in among the wilderness of the lilies, and called unto the hippopotami, which dwelt among the fens in the recesses of the morass. And the hippopotami heard my call, and came with the behemoth unto the foot of the rock, and roared loudly and fearfully beneath the moon. And I lay close within my covert, and observed the actions of the man, and the man trembled in the solitude. But the night waned, and he sat upon the rock. Then I cursed the elements with the curse of tumult, and a frightful tempest gathered in the heaven where before there had been no wind, and the heaven became livid with the violence of the tempest, and the rain beat upon the head of the man, and the floods of the river came down, and the river was tormented into foam, and the water lilies shrieked within their beds, and the forest crumbled before the wind, and the thunder rolled, and the lightning fell and a rock rocked to its foundation. And I lay close within my covert, and observed the actions of the man. And the man trembled in the solitude. The night waned, and he sat upon the rock. Then I grew angry and cursed with the curse of silence, the river, and the lilies, and the wind, and the forest, and the heaven, and the thunder, and the sighs of the water lilies, and they became accursed, and were still. And the moon ceased to totter up its pathway to heaven, and the thunder died away, and the lightning did not flash, and the clouds hung motionless. And the waters sunk to the level, and remained, and the trees ceased to rock, and the water lilies sighed no more. And a murmur was heard no longer from among them, nor any shadow of sound throughout the vast, illimitable desert. And I looked upon the characters of the rock, and they were changed, and the characters were silence. And mine eye fell upon the countenance of the man, and his countenance was wan with terror. And hurriedly he raised his head from his hand, 
and stood forth upon a rock and listened. But there was no voice throughout the vast, illimitable desert, and the characters upon the rock were silence. The man shuddered and turned his face away and fled afar off in haste, so that I beheld him no more. Now there are fine tales in the volumes of the Magi, in the iron-bound melancholy volumes of the Magi. Therein, I say, are glorious histories of the heaven and of the earth and of the mighty sea and of the genii that overruled the sea and the earth and the lofty heaven. There was much lore, too, in the sayings which were said by the civils, and holy, holy things were heard of old by the dim leaves that trembled around Dodona. But, as Allah liveth, that fable which the demon told me as he sat by my side in the shadow of the tomb, I hold to be the most wonderful of all. And as the demon made an end of his story, he fell back within the cavity of the tomb and laughed. And I could not laugh with the demon, and he cursed me because I could not laugh. And the lynx which dwelleth forever in the tomb came out therefrom and lay down at the feet of the demon and looked at him steadily in the face. End of Silence, a Fable. Show notes, check them out. That's where you're going to find sponsors and guests and t-shirts and stickers and high fives. All right, thanks everyone. We'll see you later. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the show. Music is by me, D.B. Spitzer, edited and produced by me, D.B. Spitzer. The interview portions are always edited and produced by David Heath. And hey, you can find us wherever you find podcasts. So check out pgttcm.com. And if you don't want to check out the Patreon, if you don't want to do that, and you want to help out the show, just go to sponsors or buy t-shirts or anything like that. Anything helps. Thank you again.